your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 15. We're working our way through the book of Revelation, and we're more than halfway through, and things are really starting to wind up when it comes to this time of tribulation. It's a seven-year period of time that the Bible prophesies is going to happen in the future before Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on the earth, and it's a time of pressure and trouble and difficulty, and as we've seen going through it, there were seven seal judgments where a seal was opened on a book and it introduced another bad set of events that was going to happen, some ecological disasters, some killing and war and all sorts of natural catastrophes. And, and then you had the seventh seal was the trumpet judgments. And so now you have seven trumpets and when a trumpet sounds, something else bad happens. And all of this was unfolding as this time of pressure, this time of tribulation. Now it's almost over. We're almost at the end. And though John kind of took a break for a few chapters and talked about some of the major characters of the tribulation, now and next week as we get into chapter 16, we're going to see the conclusion of this tribulation period. Then the next couple chapters after that go back and and reflect on the significance of Babylon falling and things like that. But here in chapter 15, it's a prelude to the worst of the judgments that are going to happen. The most awful things that have gone on in the world are going to happen in a matter of a day or two, just a very short period of time, these bold judgments are going to happen. But before that, in chapter 15, we have this interesting scene in heaven or relating to heaven that introduces these awful judgments. And it seems like kind of a weird contradiction because we have this great song of praise before awful things are going to happen on the earth. But this is a good time for us to reflect on the whole nature of this time of judgment this tribulation period. Because the truth is, most of us um, are going through the book of Revelation because we're going through the Bible and it's the last book left. And so we're like, okay, let's do it. And some people are fascinated by the characters, by the monsters and whatever. Other people are just like, I hope we get past these lists of judgments. Because to think about people suffering in such a horrific way is a challenge for us. It's difficult for us if we really think about it and if we really admit, you, you read this page after page and, oh, next week these events are just awful. And I go, God, what? Let's get to heaven. Let's get to all the cool stuff and, and, and let's just get over all of this judgment. But it brings up a, an issue that each one of us has in one way or another. It's a, it's a question that has been struggled with throughout time. And that is what we sometimes call the problem of evil, or the technical, theological, and philosophical term for it is the word theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. It's the word for judgment from decay with the word theos for God. And the idea is, okay, we see the world the way it is, we hear what's taught about God. How in the world can you bring this together in a way that makes sense? 
And it hinges on the idea of everything that we believe about God is questioned by everything that we see happening in the world. And that's certainly true when you look at the tribulation period. Because we always would say, hey, God is perfect. God is a good God. The reason we worship him is because he's so good. And so, you know, the, in the Psalms it says, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. So I have this belief in the goodness of God that's taught throughout Scripture. It's one of the reasons I love God is because he's so good. I also have a belief in the power of God, that he is omnipotent, that is, he can do anything. So here's the problem. If God is all good and he is all powerful, how come this world is such a mess? In fact, zoom it in a little more. Why is my life so screwed up? You know, why, why do people that I know go through so much pain? Why have I had a tough week if God is all-powerful and he's all-loving? What's this pain about? What's this misery about? And boy, does it come to a head in the tribulation period. But everyone has to wrestle with that question. And there are many people who reject God not because they don't believe in a God, but because they think if there is a God, he must not be good. Because you look at the world and it's easy to come to the conclusion that it's out of control. Some people wrestle with this theodicy question and just decide to water down the power of God. And they, and they create a notion of God who's like really well-meaning, but he's kind of, you know, there's only so much he can do. He's limited in some way, or, and often with in a belief called openness theology, they believe that God is kind of blinded to the future. He's hoping for it to work out just like we are. And they say, oh, he'll figure something out, and eventually everything will be fine. But the theology of openness has God as being a victim of what's going on in the world, even as we are. And it's horrible to me to end up facing the notion of a God who can't do anything, who just can't fix it, who just can't help. Um, so I would reject that. Scripture's rejected as well. But it's one way to deal with the problem of evil. By the way, I, uh, several, a couple months ago on a Wednesday night, I taught on the problem of evil. So if you'd like to go into some more in-depth discussions of it, you can go on the internet and, and watch that study. But that's one way to do it. Another way that people deal with the problem of evil is to say, look, if God does it, it has to be good, just because God does it. And there's some real truth to that, as we'll see as we go through this passage, but it's not just that. See, good is something that describes God. Good is not just something that, something is good just because he does it. Good is a descriptive term that says when you look at what he does, it is, it really is good. And we know what good is. We don't always know what the good thing is in a particular situation, but we understand the concept of good. And so I think it's a mistake to just discount the question and go, look, if he does it, it's good, forget about it. Um, it means something to say that God is good. Now, when we come to this period of time in history, how and why does God consistently bring these horrible events 
on the earth. These things that will, you'll see next week in, the, in these bold judgments, the horrible, you know, the burning of someone's flesh and things, how, how can that be good? That's a question that we have when we look at it, and I think it's a legitimate question, and I understand why people struggle with this issue. But here in chapter 15, I think we can get some insights. I think we can get some helpful information from some unlikely sources. And so let's just jump into this chapter and see what it has to offer to us. Revelation chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The word for complete there is telestai from the word telos. It's, it's the end. It's going to end now. We're looking at an event that is going to stop what has been the trend of the world ever since Genesis chapter 3. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now remember, this is like a sea of glass mingled with fire. So number one, it isn't necessarily glass, it's not necessarily a sea, and it's not necessarily fire, but that's what it looks like. And so he doesn't define it, so I'm not going to go into, well, you know, the sea is pure and righteous and the fire is judgment, and maybe it means that, maybe it doesn't. But he's just describing what he saw. And the point isn't the sea of glass mingled with, with fire. The point is those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So there's this vast number of people who had victory over this unholy trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself. And they won. And here they are standing in heaven. Now, interesting how they won, because the way they beat the beast was by the beast killing them. And they achieved their ultimate victory by going through the worst time in all of human history and not selling out, not giving in to this horrible one-world government and this, and this iconic image worship of this, of this powerful figure, they resisted to the point of death and therefore went to be with the Lord and found out they won. And so that's who these people are. And notice it says they have harps of God. So they have these harps. And, and harps are used in several places to refer to the music that goes on in heaven. And I, I don't know how closely the harps in heaven resemble harps that we have now. Um, most harp music I hear, you know, it's not something I would put on my iPod. Um, I, there is, I know a guy who plays the harp and he's amazing. He can make it sound just like some of the most unbelievable music that I've ever heard. Um, but some kind of stringed instruments. You know, if I hear a good guitar solo, I go, okay, that's what, I could go for that in heaven. So whatever it is, there's this, um, please, Eric Clapton, accept the Lord. But, <laughs> but, you know, here, 
they're there, it's this beautiful scene, and the music is playing, and this whole thing is being set up, and it says, these people sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, the song of Moses is referred to twi- at least twice in the Old Testament, actually, again, in Psalms as well. But it seems to be either a really long song or there were a, a song and a sequel, and perhaps this involves both of them. But in Exodus chapter 15, you see the first reference to the song of Moses. And in that case, it was Moses writing a song for the people to sing, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt celebrating specifically the fact that when they went across the Red Sea and the Egyptian army followed them, the water collapsed around the Egyptians and the Egyptians were killed, thus making the Israelis safe. And so that's the Song of Moses. Great praise for God because God destroyed their enemy in order to rescue them. Now, the other place where the Song of Moses is, and it's, it's related, but it's a lot different as well, is in Deuteronomy 32. And if you're in a home fellowship, that's going to be your discussion for this week, is to look at that Song of Moses and see what it says to you. But in that case, it's a longer song. And this case, it's similar to the first version of it, But now it's more celebrating the children of Israel being brought into the promised land, crossing the Jordan River, and then having victory over their enemies, being able to get the land that God had promised to them and to destroy the people who would try to destroy them. And again, this declaration of how good God is. And so it's in both cases, it's like, it's a little weird because part of it is, praising God because he killed somebody. But it's praising God for killing somebody who was trying to kill us. And so in that kind of a situation, you can see the connection and why it would, in terms of the Egyptians having to die, in terms of the Canaanites having to die, and now in this case, clearly in order for God to rescue his people, he has to kill people who are trying to destroy his people. And that's where there's probably a connection here, but it's the Song of Moses, it's also the Song of the Lamb, uh, which is referred to back in Revelation chapter 5, which is another um, blessing on Jesus for all that he has done. But here's the song they're singing. Great and marvelous are your works. What you do, your ergon, your, what you do as God is great, and it's marvelous. Now this word marvelous, it's also translated wonderful in a lot of places. It, it's, a, it's a word that means, wow, it's amazing, it's spectacular, but it's also a word that implies, I look at it and I have to wonder, I have to marvel, I have to go, I'm not sure I get everything that you're doing, but I have the sense that it's spectacular that it's something powerful and very special. And so this is said to the Lord God Almighty. Now, remember, these are people who have endured horrible times. But they are saying, God, you are almighty. You're the Lord. 
You're in charge. You are God. I am not going to doubt who you are in order to explain what you do. I'm not going to take a look at your works and go, I think they're bad. I'm going to go, man, from the perspective of heaven, I see what you do. I see how you do it. I, I see how you work all this out. And I just go, it's, you are the Lord God Almighty. There's this sense of submission to him as being the one who's in charge, as being the one who truly knows what he's doing. And so they say that, and then it's just, that is fair, and true. That is, there's no lie about you. You do exactly what you say you're going to do. Are your ways, scriptures tell us that God's ways are higher than our ways. This isn't saying, I get what you do, but it's saying, I know they're just and I know they're true. O king of all the saints, you're the one who we all bow to, you're in charge. And then who shall fear you? Who, who shall not fear you? Who, who in the world would not be in awe and reverence and, and be afraid of crossing you when they, when they see what you do and how you do it? Um, who shall not fear you, O Lord? And glorify your name, give you credit for who you are and for what you've done. For you alone are holy. That word alone there is the word monos. You know, we have a whole lot of words that spring forth from mono meaning one. Um, but the, the idea of the word is that you're the only one that's still standing. You're, out of all of the other options, you are what's left. You alone are God. Every other God has failed. Every other system, government, the best that the world had to offer hasn't cut it. And you remain as the last God standing. It's sort of the idea of what happened when Jesus was talking to the disciples towards the end of his life, and he still had a lot of followers at that time, but he gave them a message where he talked about the fact that you need to eat my body and drink my blood. Now that was a weird twist. A lot of people have been following Jesus, and it's like, hey, he's doing miracles, he teaches us great stuff, he likes playing with kids, he's a good babysitter, he can, he can feed you out of nothing, yeah, this, is, this guy's awesome. And then all of a sudden, he turns into Manson, and he's like, oh, and by the way, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And you can see, especially in a Jewish culture, where if you ate blood, that was the worst thing that you could possibly do. The law absolutely forbade it. And so for a leader to get up there and say that, most of the people just go, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm gone. I'm done. And most of them left. Now, Jesus goes on to explain, I'm not talking about my real blood. Come on. I'm not crazy. I, you know, the, it, this isn't blood. This is spiritually I'm speaking. You need to partake in who I am. And, I, you know, and still today there are um, people, some people who are Christians uh, from the Catholic faith, even some of the Orthodox and even Lutherans, who I think kind of mix this up and and are thinking, no, maybe in some sense it is his body and blood when we partake in the Eucharist. But in reality, if it was, 
then he would have violated the law. He couldn't have been God. Even later in, in, in Acts 15, at the church council, James said, one thing we ask of you Gentiles is, don't drink blood. So obviously, if they had a sense that communion was blood, that, they would have done that. But you could see why it would be a freak-out thing when he goes, okay, you guys want to hang with me, eat my body, and drink my blood. Well, after almost everyone left, he looked over at his handful of disciples, and he said, are you guys checking out too? And Peter said something profound, something that maybe sometimes you say yourself. I don't get what you're saying. I don't know what you're doing in my life, but Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. What Peter said is, you're our last hope. Sorry, you're the last God standing. You alone, you're, you're the only option. I've investigated the other options, and I know they aren't it, and I'm not completely understanding what your trip is, but I have to say, you're the last choice. You're the last possible option. You alone are holy. You're the only possibility of someone who is actually perfect, who is actually whole and complete, who is actually healthy and can bring some sense of life back to dead people. And, and so that's who you are. And, and that's what these guys are professing in this song. You alone are holy. You're the only option for all nations shall come and worship before you. Everyone's going to see this. For your judgments have been manifested. The word there for manifested means that they shine forth. Fanarao. They are going to be obvious to everyone. And this is at the point, remember the context, of the tribulation's almost over. There's going to be one more bad series of events and then it's done. Now, when we see this, we see some sort of a response to the problem of evil. We see some sort of a philosophical perspective, theological perspective of theodicy. Because it's like, okay, let's get this straight. They are saying, God is absolutely right and perfect. He is true and he does what he says he is going to do. This is who God is, and he is a perfect, holy God, and I, I have to trust him even when I don't understand him. Now, that at least sets the stage, but for somebody who's struggling with this problem of, you know, how could God be almighty and all-loving and still allow to go on what's going on, um, you could go, well, this is just kind of what people have always thrown out there and said. Oh, you know, he's God, therefore this is true. Is this true just because the Bible says it's true? Well, the context is so important. Because let's remember, and it gives some credibility to their testimony. These are people who find themselves as unbelievers on the earth during the time of tribulation. Horrible things are happening to them. They are martyred for their faith, but the but the wrath and the anger that is being directed at them that brings them to Jesus is something that's actually coming from God. So they have been victims of what God is doing during this tribulation period. Now when they say, God, nice job. 
that was perfect, then I think that does have some credibility. I, I, I think we need to take that into consideration. And, and it doesn't answer every question that we could ever have, but it, at least it allows us to know that right before the end, as things are unfolding, as horrible things are taking place, people who are in a position to know, and they have the perspective of having already been martyred, and now they are with God in heaven, and they are the ones who can't wait to declare the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, and the testimony of the fact that, in fact, God is almighty, and he is all good, righteous, just, and holy. And so what they have to say matters. It, 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 it does. It, it has to affect the way we look at this question. But let's think about what they've been through. We have noticed something that has been happening as we've studied through the tribulation. And the one thing that keeps popping up is that as the times get worse, some people get saved. Some people receive Jesus Christ during this time. They get martyred for it, but they go, it was worth it. Other people reject him. And as these judgments get worse, and we're going to see next week in chapter 16, with the worst of the worst happening, the people are still saying, forget you, God. We don't want you. We won't repent. Now, if the tribulation period is only designed to punish people, then it's like, wow, God's either really, really mad, or I don't understand how someone who loves can do this sort of thing. But we have to understand the purpose of the tribulation period is not just to punish. Now, I have to say this. There is a definite element of wrath and vengeance that happens during this time as well. Um, and, and that's a concept that's foreign to us because for us, vengeance is so politically incorrect that we're kind of torn because every one of us has a sense of vengeance and then society comes along and tells us we should feel guilty about that. You know, you have Osama bin Laden who goes and kills a bunch of our people in New York City and then finally after bragging about it and, and doing damage all over the world through terrorism, he gets a bullet in his head, and we almost feel guilty about it. Now, it does seem weird that people would celebrate that, but I, I understand that, because the truth is that desire that we all have to get even is a legitimate concept. It's a legitimate desire. The problem is we aren't able to decide what the best way is in order to get vengeance. Sometimes we don't have the capacity. You, you see someone who is, who is brutally um, molested. Well, how do, you, how do you get even with them? I mean, a part of it would say, well, somebody should molest them, but that starts getting weird. Lock him up in jail and give him, basically make him employed for the rest of his life? Is that vengeance? No, you still feel like something inside of you goes, I would like that kid who was molested's father to just stick a bullet in him, and then we'd all feel better. And I know that that sounds, in our culture, like an awful thing, but the truth is, 
the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So there's a part of what he's doing that's just saying, you know what? You have been killing my people and I am going to put you down. We, would, we have the sense to do that with an animal who damages and attacks others. We go, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to put you down in order to protect others. Well, when, and I know some of you animal lovers are saying, oh no, you know, they should be allowed to do that. Survival of the fittest. Uh, fine, you know, we'll drop those dogs off at your house. But, <laughs> but in the tribulation, I don't want to water this down and act like none of this is punitive, that none of this is vengeful, because this is the time when God does get even, and a just God will get even. Now you go, but wait a minute. How about me? I have done horrible things myself. Will, will my sin be judged? Will my sin, will vengeance be taken on me? Well, your sin will be, your sin will be judged and vengeance will be taken. But the Son of God stood in front of you and he took it for you. He was punished on the cross for our sins. He took that on us so that therefore God's vengeance is taken out on Jesus for anyone who will allow that to be for, you know, allow us to say, yeah, you can do that for me. But for people who reject him, vengeance still needs to take place. God cannot be just and just look over horrible offenses. He cannot just simply ignore the fact that there are people in this world who are being horrible and cruel to other people and not do something about it. And, and deep down inside, put your political correctness aside, every one of us knows we sense something needs to be done. Some people need to be put down. And that was what happened in earlier in, with the Canaanite religions and cults and the horrible things that they were involved in with the Egyptians and what they wanted to do to the Jews and how long they kept them in captivity and everything. So a part of this is payback, no doubt. But look a little deeper. Every one of these people who's singing this song had rejected Jesus Christ until the tribulation started. And something in that tribulation caused them to go, I changed my mind. I, I, I need to call in a lifeline. I, 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 want to, I want my sins to be forgiven by God. I want his death to have been for me. These people would not have been saved were it not for the horrible things that were happening on the earth. It's clear. And, and, you know, you go, I don't know, really? I mean, is that the case? Well, I'll ask you, and it's not going to be everyone, but a show of hands, how many of you accepted Jesus Christ partly connected to the fact that you were going through a really painful time in your life? Raise your hand. See, some of us are just that way. Um, some of you are like, nope. <laughs> God was good, and I, I got it. That's great, too. But ultimately, a lot of what the tribulation is about, and we've seen it already, is God squeezing and going, please, 
always with that offer, always with that message, always with the opportunity. And even during this time of these bold judgments, you'll see as we go through chapter 16 next week, the, the statement that they still hated God. They still would say, forget you, God. We don't want you. Man, some people are stubborn. But if all God wanted to do was to get rid of the evil, that would be easy. You just put everyone to sleep. You do it in a nice, humane way. You go, okay, there are people who just aren't going to get it, who aren't going to give God permission to work in their lives and to be their Lord and Savior. So, you know, what we do is I just snap my fingers and everybody who's rejected Christ just goes to sleep nice and gently and everything's fine. And if all God wanted to do was kill people, that's probably what he would have done. But he didn't want to kill people. He wanted to save people. And these people are a testimony of the fact that, God, when you threw that plague on us, the fourth one was the one that did it for me. And another guy's going, I, I hung in there until the third trumpet. And they're all going, but, but it worked, man. Look, we're here. And God, you're good. It was a great plan. The truth is, and I believe that this applies to our lives as well, and I don't profess to completely understand why God does what he does, but some of the things that we see as horrible are, in fact, horrible to people who reject the message behind it, who reject Jesus Christ. And, and you go, yeah, but we're collateral damage, just like these guys were. Yeah, there's always going to be collateral damage, but... We worship a, a Lord who gave his life in order to save others. So am I willing to live in a world and keep a good attitude if the pressure that I'm under is, for one thing, maybe benefiting me and teaching me and improving me? But secondly, if people who suffer the same thing that I am end up coming to Jesus Christ as a result of that pain, am I willing to say that might not be as bad as I think it is. I'm convinced that an awful lot of what frustrates me and what I wish I could change, and when I look at the way life is, I go, that shouldn't be that way. I might be wrong. It might be that that's the best way for God to save the most people. And we know that's his heart. He isn't willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so we need to come back to this hymn that will be the hymn of heaven for all those who have suffered as their tears are wiped away and they begin this new eternal life. They'll stand together and say, from the perspective of a survivor, it was worth it. It was a great plan. God... When you hurt me often, it helped me to grow. And it made me stronger so that I could share with others. If you had insulated me and isolated me and I had never suffered, I wouldn't have been able to share the gospel with people because they would say, it's easy for you to say, you don't know what it's like to hurt. And so God goes, I will allow you to hurt because I have this plan that wants to save as many people as possible. And, and that's what it seems to be the perspective from these guys. But at any rate, somebody who paid in a huge way the ultimate price of martyrdom 
if they are standing there saying, it was perfect, it was a great plan, then I think now I can say, God knows what he's doing. He knows a lot that I don't know. And I am going to trust him with that same faithfulness. I am going to allow him to be God alone. I'm going to allow him to be the guy that's in charge, that knows everything. Because ultimately, that's more than just, oh, I'm just blindly trusting in that. No, I've seen how it works. I understand it. And I look at God here slowly torturing the planet in order to try to rescue the last few people that might be holding out because it doesn't quite hurt enough. And he's patiently doing this. Like, like somebody who, you know, when you're a kid, you'd, you'd get in a fight, and, and you, if you say uncle, it's all over. But some people just don't want to say uncle. I remember after my younger son, Danny, started studying jujitsu, and William had been busy wrestling, and he wasn't doing jujitsu. And the first, I mean, Will would pick on Danny a lot because he was bigger and older, but man, one time Danny got, got Will locked into a rear naked choke. And he had it locked on, he had the hooks in, it's like, uh, and I was worried because Will was going to pass out. His face went red, it was starting to go blue, and I'm just going, and Danny's just going, say uncle, say uncle. And William just would not do it. And finally then he got a punch into Danny's face, Danny released the hold, and learned that he's still the little brother. <laughs> but I've seen guys in an arm bar that let somebody break their arm. They're just like, no, I'm not going to tap out. I don't do that. People are stubborn. And if God is going to save them, for some of them, he may have to go ahead and break the arm. For some of them, they still won't give up, and they're going to be flipping him off as they go to their death, going, God, I don't care about you. I don't want you. That's stupid. But God is doing everything that he can in order to say, you know, I tried. I really tried to love you. I really tried to reach you. And so that's the song that's going on here. And then in verse five, he says, after these things I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So in heaven, there was either the heavenly prototype of the temple uh, or of the, of the wilderness tabernacle, or of the tent of meeting. All these terms could kind of refer to it. But it's a place where God is. And it opened up, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure white linen. They're good guys. And having their chest girded with golden bands, they're working for the king. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, shallow dishes, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Same word there, completed. Same word that Jesus used when he said, it is finished. Finally, it's going to be over. So you see this song and then it's almost like God is in his temple and his glory shines, but he wants to be alone. He sends the angels out with these bowls that we see in chapter 16. 
But I see God in heaven just moved and in pain, realizing this is, this is it. I've done everything possible. And now some people are just going to have to be put down. But maybe some of them are going to get saved. So there he is, clothed in his glory, wanting to be alone, sending the angels out to do what we see happening in chapter 16. And I just don't think it's right for us to look at the plagues of these judgments without first understanding the context that God is incredibly loving, incredibly good, unbelievably patient, and that when it's all over with, everyone goes, you did it just right. You did it exactly the best way possible. And, and I trust God for that. And, I, and I'm thankful for this preface in chapter 15 to set me up for the end of sin as we're moving forward. And, and um, so I want to look at chapter 16 next week, but with the context of the perspective of this almighty, all good, all loving God. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for giving us this insight into life. For letting us know that there is a day coming when you are going to eliminate completely evil. You already did what was necessary to do it by taking it on yourself. And now all that's left is for people to decide whether or not they want you to save them. And God, whatever you have to do, not just in the tribulation period, but even now in our lives, whatever pressure you need to put on to save those last few holdouts, at the end we will say it was worth it. It was good because you were good. And we will be amazed at the power that you have. We already looking around the room, many of us look at our life stories, look at who we were when you found us, and we're amazed, and we're certainly grateful that life wasn't so easy that we would just go on without you. So Lord, please help us to understand this. If there are people here today, Lord, who are holdouts, I pray that you would just draw them to yourself today. Help them to surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you are here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you've probably noticed that life can hurt really bad. Well, I'm not going to tell you that if you become a Christian, it stops hurting. In some ways, it can hurt even more when you're a Christian. But what I am telling you is, if we're all going to go through this life together and hurt, I wouldn't want it to be for no reason. I would want the pain to have a purpose. And some of you are miserable and nothing good is coming of it because you're still just looking at God and going, nope, don't want you, don't need you, I'm a fine by myself. I encourage you, if today you're finally coming to the end of your rope, I pray that you will just get right with God. 
You can do it easily. All you have to do is ask him. There'll be people down here in the front who would love to pray with you and explain it to you. If you have questions, they can answer those questions. But you can give your life to Jesus today. And all of a sudden, your pain will have a purpose. There'll be a reason behind it. And, and God wants to do amazing things in your life so that when your life is over, you can look back and just say, God, that was awesome. That was amazing. So if you don't know him, come to know him today. It's simple, and it'll be the best decision that you ever made. For the rest of us who know him, uh, I have good news and bad news, and that's usually a way of saying I have bad news. <laughs> um, some of you are going to hurt this week. Some tough things are going to happen. But let's remember that an almighty God is working in our lives and that he wants to bring about something amazing out of what he is doing. So if he is squeezing you, look within and go, God, what is it that you're trying to save me from? What is it that you're trying to remove where I'm destroying myself and you're trying to help me by putting the pressure on? Or maybe you're trying to help somebody else by me being under pressure. So give up and just submit, surrender to him everything this week and, and know that God is good and he's powerful and he has a plan and it's working. It's working exactly the way he intends for it to. May God give you a week of recognizing and realizing that we're on the winning side. God bless.